reading and learning about God of the Bible. To help us stay focused and to encourage participation, I've been using the book, The Story, where pastors Max Lucado and Randy Frazee have developed our curriculum and developed our pace. I've also enjoyed Colin Smith's commentary, and today especially, a guy named Gary Inrig. I'm very grateful for Nate a couple weeks ago and for my brother last week who are able to share God's Word with us while I was not here, or at least not up at the pulpit. I'm so grateful for, for these men who love God and love you very, very well. But just to review just a little bit, the story that we've been talking about begins in a garden where everything is perfect for a while. Oh. In spite of the broken world, though, God decides to create a nation where he could live and interact. So God raises up a guy named Moses who desires to lead Israel to another garden. But when the Jews had that chance, they made a poor choice at Kadesh Barnea where they lacked faith. They complained and chose to wander for 40 years. After all those years of wandering, they now stand in the same spot. But what's so cool is they do not make the same mistake. For the next 30 years or so, Joshua leads by faith and with integrity. Before he literally breathes his last breath, at 110 years old. Well, if you've been reading along with us and reading ahead, you find out that God does not want Joshua to totally clear the land. He was going to leave bands of resistance all the way through the promised land. We read in Judges chapter 2, verse 22, and this is why he did this. God said, I did this. I left these, well, people in the land to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test the Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. Interesting. He did this to teach warfare to the generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations... The Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidians, the Hivites, living in the mountains of Lebanon and Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands of the Lord or commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. Let's pray. Before we actually see how this next generation did, this week's story is found in the book of Judges. 
Father, we come before you again and grateful for who you are, the God who created this planet and everything in it by the word of his mouth. We get to have a relationship with you. And we just want to say thank you. We love the scriptures that you've given us. We know, Father, that, well, we're taught by them. We learn about you. We learn how to live. Father, this book, the book of Judges, is a hard book. It covers about one-third of all of the Old Testament history. It's a sad book. But, Father, there's some really good parts in it. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, that we would see something today that would energize us and encourage us and strengthen us in our walk. We pray for those churches around us, Lord, who are teaching your word, that you would use your word and that the Holy Spirit would powerfully teach us and encourage us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start off in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. If you have your Bibles, you can open that up. If not, the verse is up on the screen. But this is what I think is pretty important to start off our time. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. It's a pretty wonderful epitaph. That would be terrific. You know, during the time that I led Israel, people followed God. It was important. And all those people that saw God do some pretty amazing things, they listened to God. But something happens in in Judges. Judges is a story of the next 330 years, about one quarter of the history of the Old Testament. Judges is a story of a nation under oppression for 111 years years out of those 330. Actually, it's a nation that illustrates for us how compromise brings failure. So, well, Rick, I I got up early this morning to be able to come here to find out and and learn all about compromise and failure. Uh, Yes and no. All right. But let's look into this. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10. If you mark your Bibles, again, I encourage you to do this because this verse here is a pretty sad verse. And I'd highlight it in order to learn from it. Scriptures say, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. What does compromise look like to God? What does it look like? I'm going to 
read through quickly the first three chapters of Judges. Not every verse. But I think the first place that God sees compromise is partial obedience. You see, for the most part, most of us who walk with God, well, we pat ourselves on the back. We look at our lives and say, well, you know what, I go to church, or you know what, I give some money in the offering, or you know what, I serve every once in a while. And we start convincing God of all the wonderful things that actually we do. And there are some pretty wonderful things that you do. But what we don't understand is that partial obedience is literally disobedience. Is if we don't obey God in every area, we're not obeying God. Let me give you some highlights. As I said, this was a group of people that saw some amazing things. They had an amazing leader. Joshua dies, and this next generation doesn't even know God. How did that happen? How can you go from this high pinnacle down to a valley like this? Well, here's a few things. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 4. When the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and parasites. <laughs> parasites. 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 That's good. Verse 6. Adoni Bezak escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his big, or his thumbs and his big toes. Rick, this is a powerful verse to be talking about. Now, what we don't understand is that God really gave the command. I would like you to wipe out these nations. They have disobeyed me, and it is part of my judgment. But somehow Israel decided, let's not really destroy this king. Let's just do what the kings normally do in the Canaanite culture. We'll cut off the thumbs and the toes. And we'll let them live. To us, it's not a big deal. To God, this was a pathway, a spiral down. Let's read some more. Verse 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But, circle that if you have that in your Bibles, they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites. Verse 22, the descendants of Joseph attacked the town of Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And you're going to see this all the way through. It was not that God bailed on them. God was with them. But look what happened in verse 27. The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in. Oh, because the Canaanites were just determined to live in that region. Verse 28, when the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them out completely. Hey, that sounds like a good deal. Let's just have them work for us. Let's not really completely obey you, God. Verse 29, 
the tribe of Ephraim, failed to drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, the tribe of Zebulon, failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahal. You keep going down there, and over and over, verse 33, likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead, they moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. Now, to be quite honest, there's a lot of ites everywhere. And there's a lot of specifics here. But what you're going to do is get the picture of this. God said, I will be with you. You listen to me. You wipe out these people because there's going to be a problem if you don't. Well, the Jews at this time decided that must have been too ruthless. Or no, I didn't want to do that. Or no, we'll just torture the kings. Or no, we'll make them slaves. Or no, we'll let them live among us and we'll just make sure we're stronger than them. Second thing that happened, not only did they partially obey, but they got involved with idolatry. In almost all of chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 1. And the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For you, your part, Israel... You were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed me. And then listen to what God says in verse 3. So now, I declare I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Well, the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all these Israelites, and the people wept loudly. We'll jump down to verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. Verse 15, every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as they were warned. And the people were in great distress. Verse 20, So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. And if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. The third area of compromise was Intermarriage. Intermarriage. So we get a picture here. This was an amazing time when Joshua was leading. But we come into the book of Judges, and all of a sudden there's compromise all over. 
They partially obey. They sort of listen. They are enthralled with the new idols and the new gods that these countries are worshiping. And they begin to absolutely toss out all of their culture and begin to intermarry. You know, it's easy to put these ancients, I think, in a box. But if we're honest, each one of us still struggle with compromise. We sort of obey God and expect God to bless us. We have things that we worship that, well, are not as important to God as God is. And we think again, well, you know what? I go on Sundays. Intermarriage. You know, one of the most important things that a young man and a young woman can do is fall in love and marry someone that loves the Lord. After coming to faith, there is nothing more important if you're going to get married than to marry someone that loves Jesus. Over and over, I've sat with young people who have absolutely convinced me that this girl will eventually love Jesus. This boy, I am telling you, I know, I know, I know he's going to come to faith. Or, you know, Rick, he's a Christian. Yeah, but I'm just letting you know, I don't see any fruit Look how he spends his money. Look how he spends his time. Look what's most important to him. Do, do you understand that if you marry him, oh, it's going to be hard. It's not impossible, right, Rick? No, no, it's not impossible. But it's going to be hard. God desires deeply for each one of us to thrive. And any kind of compromise, no matter what it is, God can give you grace. He did, and you're going to see this in the book of Judges. But these people for 111 years out of 330 were miserable. In fact, there's a cycle. There's a cycle here, a downward spiral. And this cycle is worthy to study. If you open your Bibles back to Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Judges 2, 16. And this is the cycle. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted prostituted, went after other gods that looked prettier themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. 
For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after God, serving and worshiping them. They even, and they refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. The cycle was this. So very, very simple. There was compromise slash obedience. Disobedience, excuse me. Compromise and disobedience. I'm not going to listen to you, God. Actually, what anyone who says that literally is saying, I am smarter than you, God. I know what's best for me. I'm going to live my life. I do not need to obey you. I can obey you in some areas that make sense to me, but in most areas, (laughs) I'm the boss. So the first thing that happens is compromise or disobedience. Secondly, there's bondage and misery. We'll say, Rick, this isn't the time of judges. Oh, folks, you're going to see very clearly that this cycle continues even today. And then after they've been beat up for enough years and they're absolutely hiding in caves, hardly able to eat, just being maliciously treated, they cry out to God. There's repentance. There's God. We have gone a wrong direction. And then there's liberation. And then rest for a while, or peace, before compromise, disobedience, bondage, misery, and repentance and liberation. And they get rest, and the cycle starts all over again. Let me remind you this, that compromise always deceives us. It does. Partially obedient is disobedient. Compromise takes you by the hand and leads you down the path of bondage and misery. Bondage happens when God withdraws his protection and actually lets you live the way you want to live. Wow. You know, repentance happens quicker and more often as you walk with the king. Sometimes when you're younger, sometimes when you don't understand who God is, and sometimes when you're really, really, really stubborn and you want your own way, and you can live your life your own way because God is a fuddy-duddy, he's got all these really archaic rules, and I just don't want to listen. God's rules are there for us to thrive. God's principles are there Because he's the creator and knows how we are wired. We can fight against that all we want. But as you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus and you see how beautiful and wonderful and abundant walking with him is, when you sin, when you break a principle, repentance happens quickly. As you walk with the king, you realize that I am not going to experience abundant living if I continue in my rebellion. 
You know, Charles Spurgeon, a famous 19th century speaker, I, I love reading Spurgeon. He's hard to understand only because of his English. But when you understand what he is saying, he was such a preacher that wanted people to, his people to walk with the Almighty. He loved God with all of his heart. And he said this, Repentance is as much a mark of being a Christian as faith is. A very little sin, as the world sees it, is a very great sin to a Christian who walks with God. Repentance literally liberates you. And you will see this as you read through Judges. They live, they do their own thing. God punishes them. He brings them into bondage. He sends a judge. He relieves them of the pressure. And they experience peace or abundant living while the judge is living. Let me just share this. Is that sometimes we think regret is repentance. It's kind of like, oh, I got caught. I'm really sorry I got caught. I'm going to have to be smarter next time, right? I mean, I can outwit. No, no, that's not repentance. That is not repentance. In fact, I oftentimes go to a scripture, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9, 10, and 11. And the reason I'm even saying this is that so many of us just say, oh, you know what, I lied the other day, I'm really sorry. Oh, you know what, I, I talked about someone the way I shouldn't have talked. Hey, you know what, I, I won't do that again. And we just kind of walk away. We don't understand what repentance really is. Owning our sin. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, 9, verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 9, 10, and 11. This is amazing. He's so proud of the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church was kind of a wild church, just so you know. But they had repented of some of their sin. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, now I am glad I sent it. Well, he sent a letter that confronted the sin. Not because this letter hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, the kind of repentance, leads us away from sin and results in salvation or freedom or liberation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow or repentance produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal and such readiness to punish the wrong. Make it right. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You know, this is a little test. When you repent, and it's some casual kind of word, 
Ah, you know what? I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Hey, you know what? I, I, I'll try. Now, maybe that's good enough. But my guess is if we understand what repentance and we see the sin or the offense, whether we've done it against the Almighty God originally or against a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife, is that we understand that we have hurt them and we will do everything possible to make it right. And there will be life change. So I've never ever seen repentance casual. Something you just, you know, it's the back seat in the car after your son just whacked your daughter. And you look at him and say, Joshua, see, you're sorry. Or I'm stopping this, yeah. And he looks at his dear sister, Kara. I'm sorry. And we just drive on then because everything's perfect. Yeah. That works. This is the repentance. It's not just doing something because we're supposed to do it. It's, I, I didn't understand how much I hurt you, God. I didn't understand how my words did this to you, my friend. Please, would you forgive me? I don't want to talk like that anymore. By God's grace, he's going to help me treat you differently. I'm going to change my way by God's power. Well, let me illustrate this cycle in Judges chapter 3. And again, I'm going to encourage you to read all the way through Judges because this is all the way through, but Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God. They served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Kushan Rish-a-the-um. Of a of something. And the Israelites served Kushan Rathaham for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer or a judge to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. And he went to war against this king. And the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then... Othniel dies. Look at verse 12. Oh. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Oh my. And say, Rick, again, why are we studying this? Why are we looking like this? Because if I'm totally honest, so many of us are in the midst of this cycle. And we don't get it. We don't. We sometimes, somehow have listened to the enemy's deception. 
that says if you follow God with all of your heart, that you're going to miss out. That is a lie. If you follow God with all of your heart, you will live abundantly. Not perfectly. Abundantly. Now here, in all the book of Judges, here's the list of oppressors. And I've got it up on the screen for you. There's Othniel. And he ruled for eight years. Excuse me. He, he, the Israelites, the Jews, were oppressed for eight years before he came on the scene. Then there was Ehud. Shamgar we don't know a whole lot about. There's Deborah and Barak and Gideon and Tola and Jer and Jephthah and Ibsen and Elon and Abdon and Samson, which so many of you know. There are some interesting stories in Judges. Stories that if you read them may bring up more questions than answers. But I've got to tell you an area that I was so amazingly convicted of. Because, again, as a youth pastor or as a Bible teacher, the book of Judges is filled with great stories to tell kids, right? They are. There's the Gideon story, which probably everybody has heard of, and especially Samson. And there's a few other highlights, but, but here, these are, this is great stuff. But I always looked at Gideon rather negatively. I looked at Samson and said, are you serious? Like, what's your problem? But listen to what the author of Hebrews writes. And folks, this should blow your mind. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 34. He just gets through, the author just gets through talking about all these great men and women of faith. Unbelievable in Hebrews chapter 11. And he's kind of ending up his, his scenario here. And he just says this, how can I say any more, okay? How much more do I really need to say to you folks? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Well, David, we kind of agree with Samuel and all the other prophets, yeah. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and they escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness, this is an underliner, and I can tell all of you really do that when I say that. You all still look at me, okay? But perhaps we could bring some pens or something and do this underlining thing. You'll love it later. All right? Okay. Underlying thing. Their weakness was turned to strength. I mean, there should be hallelujahs going in there. There should be like, yes, there's hope for me. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. I look at this and I tell you, I am convicted. I reread this. I re-looked at this. What can I glean from this? And I got to tell you this, is my perspective is so very, very different than God's perspective. He sees me differently. He sees you differently. And he saw these four people differently. Barak. If you read about Barak, Deborah 
don't know who Deborah is, but Deborah was the judge at that time, recruited Barak. Deborah told Barak, hey, God wants you to lead an army. Barak goes, I'm not leading an army unless you come with me, Deborah. Oh boy, this is one powerful dude. Okay, just one I want leading my army. But Barak was an insecure man that turned into a confident leader. That's kind of cool. Gideon. We all have heard about Gideon, but we find Gideon, and he is literally shocked because God chose him. He's the weakest family in the weakest clan. He's literally hiding from all of his enemy, and God comes and says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Really? I am hiding, mighty hero. Okay, and, and you're going, but Gideon asked for some signs, and you know the story. There's too many warriors and too many things, and God whittles down an army to 300, and he defeats an army with the odds of 666 to 1. Whoa, Gideon was a weak man that turned into a mighty warrior. Jephthah. You read that story and you are so confused. Jephthah was a great warrior, a son of a prostitute. He was kind of the Robin Hood uh, of judges, leading a band of rebels. He had some great victories. But he's known for a goofy vow he made to the Lord. Jephthah was a mighty warrior turned into a usable man by hanging out with God. And then Samson. Oh, <laughs> Who doesn't know about Samson? What a reputation. But let me remind you, he was special from his birth. He was separate. And in all of the book of Judges, he was the only judge that let alone. We focus on his weakness. And believe me, there were weaknesses. But he led Israel for 40 years. Samson was a selfish, independent, strong man who finally used his gifts to advance the kingdom. Now, if we read all the way through Judges, we get all these different perspectives. But just about the last verse in Judges, Judges 21, 25, this is the sad commentary. In those days... Israel had no king. All the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. What can we learn about judges? We always have an upper story, what we can learn about God, and judges helps us understand God. Two things come out to me, is that God does test us. God does test us. He sets us up well, but He tests us. And secondly, God's love and mercy and grace shout. That's why He judges sin. If we look at the lower story, how this book affects us. You know, our times reflect the time of Judges. Those people who started off in Judges, they were born in prosperity, fascinated with the search for spiritual meaning, but not knowing the Lord or what He had done for them. That's our generation. And yet, 
there were some people that made an unbelievable kingdom impact. We need to realize compromise is still a big deal. It will happen less when we walk with God. By God's grace, weakness can be turned into strength. None of us, in spite of, you know, reading about Samson, wants Samson's reputation. But realistically, there was something very special about that man. It's some kind of leadership that we may never understand, but ultimately, and there are consequences for disobeying God, ultimately, he died believing in an amazing God. And then lastly, and I think this is big, what can be lost in one generation can also be restored in one generation. And that just simply means this. If we do our own thing and run our own way and, and just not at all aware of who God is or listening to God, it doesn't take long before God has to chastise because he loves you like crazy. He does not want you or me to live a life apart from him. He knows what's best. And he knows how to bring you back. So you can fight it. Or you can submit to it. And one of the things, especially I want to talk to just some of you older people for a moment. It's so hard sometimes to be faithful to young people. In some ways, they're really arrogant. In some ways, they know everything. In some ways, why even say a thing? And yet, I know that every one of you, anyone, every one of you who know the Lord and walk with God, and you're near the latter stages in your life, you know how sweet God is. Fight for Him. Fight him. Your kids and your loved ones will never regret it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Judges. We don't like so much of the book. But God, I am so grateful that you teach us that your way is the best way. There, there, the enemy can not deceive us unless we let him. We have an opportunity, Father, to make a kingdom impact. To partner with you in all the things that you want to do on this planet. And Lord, there are times when we just think your ways and your principles are archaic. Oh God, would you, would you give us a clear vision of you today? Would you help us see you so clearly that we are drawn to you? In Jesus' name, amen.